Blog Talk Radio. Hey, it's time for Helping Behaviorally Challenging Students. Dr. Ross Green here, coming to you from the Lives in the Balance offices in Portland, Maine. Delighted that you uh, were able to join in today. Today's an educators panel day, um, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't call in and ask any questions that you might have, uh, either of me or of our educators panel. That call in number is 646 727 2691. And um, as you may know, this program airs live every Monday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. It will not be on the air next Monday because of the uh, holiday in the United States, Veterans Day, but then we'll be back again in two weeks. I see that we have two of our educators panel members on already, Tom and Nina. Welcome to the program today. Thank you. Hello. How are you both today? I was in Tom's school today doing some filming, something that I wanted to spend a little time talking about today. Um, But we'll see if you all have anything that you want to start the day with. I think that Carol is going to be joining us momentarily. Uh, Tom, I must say, when I saw you in your building today, you looked tired. (laughs) Yeah, we've had a lot of very um, challenging situations this fall. Uh, You looked a little ragged, my friend. (laughs) Oh, thanks. (laughs) Either that or you had a tough weekend. No, we we have been um, um, working really hard to balance the values of collaborative problem solving with uh, discipline. Hmm. And it's really tricky because we've had some situations come up that, that really required discipline, from uh, all the classic standpoints, but kind of also went against the 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 moral compass of kids do well if they can. So it just kind of keeps coming up, you know. And and I think the key is to just keep applying the principles to each situation, uh, you know, thinking about how to get um, get students what they need to be successful at school. And it's really interesting when you when you have. Uh, um, really behaviorally challenging children in a in a building that may have an individualized plan or um or uh that you're working to uh you know develop their their lagging skills and help them solve their problems sometimes there's a little bit of flexibility with that and then a student in the regular ed setting who's not receiving those supports does something with behavior and you have to um correct them following a little bit more traditional route in the sense that they'll respond to expectations and consequences. It's just interesting because then the parent of the student who's a, a kind of a, a, the parent of the student who's a, 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 a very regularly functioning healthy student who kind of steps pretty far out of line and, and needs to be disciplined says, well, why is this happening to my child but not to, to this other child? Mm-hmm. And that's when you get back into the piece about, you know, it, Fair isn't always equal, and and it's just a very it's been a complex few weeks 
It's been a complex fall because of the Chapter 33 law, Ross, yeah. that I explained to you. And you know, you'll and that's have to really let people added. know what, what that is. Uh, well, and we by have the way, very... we have been, we've been joined by Carol. So, Carol, welcome to the program. Thank you. Um, what's the Chapter 33 law, Tom, for those who are not in the loop? We have a very restrictive law that was just passed in Maine over the summer uh, regarding uh, restraint and seclusion. And in essence, it makes very minimal physical contact with children or redirection could be considered restraint under certain circumstances. Mm-hmm. And so it just makes it difficult to work with parents when we have to say that we've restrained their child when maybe they were just um, guided or redirected. It's particularly complicated for K-2 students, and I would assume, Nina, that you, you would agree with me, correct? Oh, absolutely. Yep. It's very you know, it's very restrictive and also um, not only restrictive, but I think it has it's interpreted diff- differently by so many different people, so it's it's very complicated. Yeah. Yes, it is interpreted by different people. If you go with the lawyer perspective, which is very rigid, um, it, it would make it almost impossible to run a K-2 school, and if you go with a little more liberal read on it, it, it could leave you open to concerns if the wrong thing happened. So it's really, exactly. really, really odd tricky. to be. Yeah. Yeah, I'm well, sure I have so many different philosophies. Yeah, there's so many different people, and there's so many different people that, you know, even staff that feel so differently, and, you know, it's just hard to, and the, finding the time to really have big conversations about it and training, I feel like, is what's also really missing. Mm. It kind of was thrown, thrown at us and not a lot of time. Well, that happens in education frequently. It happened with inclusion, um, where we started including kids, which is a wonderful thing, but decided to do that without training anybody about what was coming down the pike. Um, right. That I think that I've seen that happen in education in many instances. Um, interestingly enough, the um, n- narrowed definition of what it means to restrain or seclude a kid hit on inpatient psychiatry units a while back in in some states. I'm not sure if that is it was a federal thing or a state thing. I would have to look that up. But um, all of a sudden, uh, some physical redirection became a restraint. And um, on inpatient units where, of course, that's stuff that they have, that they deal with frequently, um, that created um, some interesting definitional definitional challenges because things that they had been doing that they thought was okay all of a sudden became not okay. Um, okay. So it's all very interesting stuff. Carol, do you have to deal with that sort of a thing up where you are in British Columbia? Uh, I'm going to say thankfully no. <laughs> um, obviously we are uh, – we're not we're – not, um, guided by legislation and that we're more guided by policy and best practice rather than having things legislated on us like that. And that that's exactly the change is that it became legislation in Maine whereas it had been policy previously. Mm. Yep. I think the hardest po- part is that it affects the relationships with parents because you have to use language, language. to describe situations that previously would not have been nearly as heated. Mm. Exactly. And so you have to learn how to, you know, balance it. And the intent of the law is a good thing. I mean, it's Mm. trying to Mm -hmm. save children's lives and, you know, and and a lot of the language does say, you know, not to use restraint to um, control challenging behavior, but exactly like you're saying, but the definition of restraint is what's getting in the way. 
Okay, so now I understand why Tom looked a little ragged this morning. It had nothing to do with his weekend. He's got a lot on his plate, as principals frequently do. I'll probably be in Nina's school either this week or next week. We'll see how ragged Nina's looking. <laughs> and Carol, I was in your neck of the woods. Yeah, Carol, I was in your neck of the woods last week. What's that? Yep, I would have looked a little ragged if I had made it to your session on Friday because we had uh, shortages of substitute teachers all week. So I was teaching my my ears off. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, we had that today too. On top of everything else. The subs are hard. People are out a lot this time of year, and when yeah. they're behaviorally challenging kids and they have, um, you know, goals and plans and people have done a lot of collaborative problem-solving and worked with kids, switching the adults is really challenging. Yeah. Very mm-hmm. challenging. Can I say well, one I thing, think, Tom, yeah. about about a comment that you were making when you were talking about um, where sometimes, you know, you're working with kids who do respond to, um, you know, rewards or, or consequences and one of the things that we've been doing here that ties in with collaborative problem solving is um, understanding attachment theory. We have a researcher here at uh, University of British Columbia named Dr. Gordon Newfeld, who has done a lot of work in attachment theory and how k- developing healthy attachments for kids with adults um, helps them to mature he- in a healthy way. And one of the things that, that he um, promotes is what he calls attachment-safe disciplinary practices. And um, some practices that we use, they're very hard to let go of because they work, but they're also not attachment-friendly. So that's just what came to mind when you were talking about, for example, like timeout or putting a child in a different classroom um, if they're having difficulty focusing or, or behaving appropriately in their own class with their own peers and their own teacher. The teacher may send them to, say, a buddy class to have a place where they can focus. And the difficulty with... The, what Dr. Neufeld would um, would posit is that that's it. While it may work in the short term, the long term implication of that in terms of the relationship between the homeroom teacher and the student is actually quite detrimental. And so we have to be careful about those types of practices that may work in the short term, but we have to look at the long term implications. Hmm. And I'm not even going to enter the fray on this yet, but. Um, <laughs> Tom, maybe you can say more about kids who are usually doing fine and the application of traditional discipline to them. Well, I've been thinking a lot about this, and I, I think that, that that I guess, well, first of all, I'm not, not to correct you, Ross, but uh, I think I use the term myself, so I, I, sincere I'm not correcting you, uh, correcting myself that... <laughs> Traditional discipline isn't really um, – I don't really know what that is because it was different even from school to school traditionally. But what I think of is having behavioral expectations and consequences for students who don't meet those expectations is generally good for the school. And I, I keep explaining to the, the staff that the collaborative problem solving says that if you can't meet the expectations – it, you know, you have to have expectations and structure. That's the first half of the, the X that you talk about in your presentations, Ross. And then the, the, the other half is if you can't meet those, you, you do collaborative problem solving to help the students who can't meet the expectations to be able to eventually learn the things that they need to do so that they can do well if they can. So long and short of it is, a lot of times if a kid's really naughty and they do something wrong and you discipline them and correct them, they will not do it again. It will work for them. 
It's the students that that doesn't work for that we're putting a lot of time into. And a lot of times we were doing work by pointing the, the, the change at them. So, well, if you don't do this, then you're going to do that. Instead of the, the shift with collaborative problem solving is that you start to have a conversation with the child and include their current concerns and perspectives, and, you know, the first ingredient, the first part in the empathy step, and then you make sure that your concerns and perspective are on the table, and then you try to find a solution that meets both needs. That, that generally is a much more effective way to work with children. The problem is when a, a student is, uh, let's say, um, having physical contact with another student, and the student who's who's the uh, aggressor is a student that you've been working a lot with collaborative problem solving, and you know that, quote, sending them home for the afternoon is just going to send them to a home that's challenging, that created who they are today anyway. It's not going to work. Whereas another student who maybe has not had as many issues has physical contact, and you say to them, um, you know, we're going to have a conversation with your parents, and they're going to take you home and talk about it, but you know, I know that things will be fine tomorrow. I mean, 95% of the kids that come through the door, having that conversation will be enough. It's the 5% that, or 10%, or some schools, 25%, that we have to do a lot more than just, quote, apply discipline. We have to, we have to work with them. And so I've just been thinking about that and how to balance it uh, in the everyday functioning of a school. And I'm sure that there are other principals out there who are thinking about that while implementing collaborative problem solving, certainly I would be at the high school level. Yes. Um, so, so Carol, what would – it depends a little bit on, Tom, what you mean by traditional discipline. Um, talking to a kid and letting his parents know that something happened at school that needs to not happen again is what I would call sort of reminding a student – of our expectations. Mm -hmm. um, and, as you're saying, if a student has the skills to meet our expectations, then a simple reminder should accomplish the mission because that's apparently all the student needed. Oh, and I say apparently, apparently is in quotes, because the big question for me is, um, is it still the case that we don't want to gather information about why the student who typically doesn't have difficulty meeting our expectations did in this instance, in which case I'm still wondering about whether I want to gather information, but I guess it depends a little bit on, you know, a reminder of expectations is a fairly commonplace thing. And as you're saying, most kids, given the reminder that their behavior deviated from our expectations, um, will, generally speaking, be able to continue meeting our expectations with a simple reminder that they got out of line once. But I guess it depends on what you mean by traditional discipline and whether going further than a simple reminder, Carol, would take the intervention outside of what Gordon Neufelder would call attachment-safe discipline. Right, and um, where I find the two approaches overlap is in um, spending more time with the child where, you know, when we're doing collaborative problem solving, we're obviously working on the skills and identifying the underlying unsolved problems and lagging skills, but you're also, for me, one of the biggest 
pieces that that draw that drew me at first into collaborative problem solving was just showing the kids that we care about them and spending time with them, not just you know sending them home and or sending them away or sending them into timeout, just actually spending the time with them because it lets the kids know that we're sincere about our caring for them that we're here to help them through things rather than building up more resentment. Because that's what I find is always my concern when, when you know, let's use that term, traditional discipline runs through my mind in a situation is what's the impact of this going to be on my or the teacher's relationship with the student? And if it's going to build more resentment or going to um, reinforce their, oh, yeah, you're just like everybody else, you don't care about me either, then that's what helps to steer me back on the course of collaborative problem solving. Right, and I think that Nina, the more you kids weigh in? send out, oh, I'm sure. I think, <laughs> you know, the more that I see too when kids are sent to a buddy teacher or sent outside um, of the classroom, it's just it just starts to go downward so quickly, and they start to you can see that that attachment. Theory definitely in play, and also just that relationship being severed, and um, and just that the child's not part of the classroom anymore, and not part of the routine, and doesn't feel, you know, part of that community, and um, it just it's such a slippery slope, and again, it brings me back to that collaborative problem solving, just trying to figure it out as well, um, you know, just what you're saying, but I hear just what you're saying, Tom, that just that balance all the time, and the balance of of some of those kids that are so challenging are more visible. Specifically in my school, I guess, we, we struggle with space. So, um, you know, I hear a lot from outside sources saying, well, you know, if that student isn't getting, if that student's allowed to have this or that, you know, just that conversation goes back to they are not equal and, and you know, to say, well, we didn't know that your child needed that much. You know, that that much more plans or, or whatever it is, but it it does seem like that balance um you know, trying to advertise what you're doing is always is always on our plate here as well. Yeah, I know your building, so I can see how that because of the way it's got <laughs> almost like two floors. Yeah, well, it's three and, floors. Yep, and we don't have um, you know, we just don't have any extra space. Our we have a yeah. counselor that comes once a week, and she has to see her student in a stairwell. So, and we just don't have a room. So it yeah. does create problems for kids that are displaying really challenging behavior or that are needing extra breaks or spending time with our therapy dog or whatever it may be. It's just, it's a little, it's more visible to to the public. And in, I'm sure as in your school, you have millions of volunteers and people around all the time. So yep. it's hard to have that privacy. It is. And, so and Tom, I think that the, as you're describing traditional discipline, which I know is the term you used. Sure, sure, sorry. The part I grapple with is this. Um, yeah, I get it that you have the parents of the kid who didn't get the problem solved collaboratively, wondering why their kid wasn't the beneficiary of what another kid may have been the beneficiary of. Um, How do you decide who you're going to solve the problem collaboratively with and who not is the part that I struggle with, and especially with the part of gathering information from the student who is usually doing well about why they didn't do well 
in this instance? And those are the parts of what you've been saying that I'm struggling with the most, putting the realities of um, just the sheer number of kids who need your attention aside for the moment. And that's not an insignificant consideration, but putting that aside for the moment um, help me understand that part a little bit or help me with it. Um, for example, my son, who never swears, called his sister a name while I was in British Columbia last week. <laughs> And he beat her to the punch because he called me before she did (laughs) (laughs) to let me know that he had, and it wasn't a, well, it wasn't a terrible name. It was basically part of the human anatomy, but not not put in the way a doctor would. Um, (laughs) And so he called me to let me know that he had done this, and... um, while I reminded him of what he already knew, that that went outside the expectations of uh, what would be considered um, adaptive behavior in our family, um, it was important for me to still understand the context in which it occurred, especially since my son is not a swearer Um, in which case I imagined that him swearing probably occurred under extenuating circumstances in which the demands being placed upon him, presumably by his sister, outstripped the usual Mm -hmm. skills he had to deal with it adaptively. And I very much wanted to know about that, even though my son typically adheres to the expectation of not swearing without great difficulty. So that's the part that I'm struggling with the most as it relates to uh, handling a kid who normally meets our expectations differently when he doesn't meet our expectations than a kid who has a plan or is having even greater difficulty meeting our expectations. But that's to me, that's a fascinating topic, which we should sink in, sink our teeth into a little bit. So, yeah, I've, I think I've, and I I've, always think... Go ahead, Tom. <laughs> no, no, I didn't know. He asked me a question in the first part, but I got lost. <laughs> Not lost, but I wasn't sure if I, I was supposed to respond and answer. I apologize. Go ahead, Nina. Why would we handle the kid who typically has no difficulty behaving himself differently than the one who has more trouble behaving himself? Well, I think that, that what, I, what I was trying to kind of get to the crux of or where, where the, the, the part that I was struggling with and am working on myself at this point is um, – there are uh, students that have that are, are struggle on a very high level that we work the student may not like let's say that uh, just to keep it pretty simple the punishment typically for fighting on the playground is that um, we call the parents and talk with the parents and if it's severe enough the parent might come get the child and, and talk with up meet have a meeting and then take the child home and talk with them now, there are students that, that have behavioral concerns that that is not going to be effective, and there are many children who, if you called their parent and they came in and met with them, and then the parent took them home and talked with them, that would be, I wouldn't see them again. It wouldn't be a problem. They would understand. They, would, they have the skills. They just slipped. They're second graders. You know, because they, they, sometimes on the playground, things get 
they just start playing and it just kind of goes past a point that's safe. And certainly there are times where, where it's fine. So I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that, that I'm just trying to work on this, this balance between kind of over-analyzing a situation where just saying to a student, you know, this is not okay, the expectation is present, I know you can meet the expectation, and then they say, yeah, you're right, you know what, I, I, I can, and they're good, and they don't, they don't need to have a, a, a bigger conversation about it, but then there are other students that really do need literally to have a, a, a you know, an ongoing, I mean, I have a student in my building that I have an ongoing CPS conversation with all the time. You know, just always talking to him, checking in, getting his concerns and perspective, listening. Um, he's it's so there. There's just different gradations or levels of need, I guess, and I'm just trying to figure out how to handle that. It's a uh, um, it's complicated when you start to look at it through the lens of kids doing well if they can. But even when I investigated a situation recently, I I started out by saying, "Okay, guys, I heard about this, so what's up?" And I let them talk to me. And I listened, and I dug for information, who, what, where, when, how, why. I mean, I used collaborative problem solving, but the outcome was that, that the event occurred, and the students did it, and they admitted it and owned it. And, and honestly, I'm not even worried about them. I know they'll be, they'll be fine. Um, but I did get some information, Ross, about what happened right before, where the decisions were made, what, what was going on. So I actually just wanted to kind of back, back up a little and say I did go down the exact route that you had just expressed. And it sounds like Tom, what you're saying too is that you probably you're using collaborative problem solving all the time, even with those one you know one time things. All the time. It's just a part of what you're doing all the time. It's just sometimes those kids, and you do find information like they're tired or that they had a fight with their sister before, but it's not this ongoing um, plan B conversation. But it's that you dug for information and found out what happened, understand, and it's just a different way of thinking. But it's not as elaborate as our other kids that we're with all the time. Um, you're having plan B conversations daily. Right. Carol, any thoughts? Is, um, I think maybe the difference is is the depth and the in, the intensity of the plans. Mm-hmm. So for with some students, you know, they're able to if they have skills and they're normally able to handle situations, they're able to come up with the plan really quickly and they they know what they could have done and what they should have done and they're able to come up with something quite quickly that they can um that they can accomplish and and implement. Whereas with other students who are lacking more skills, um, you've got to not only put the plan in place but and, and adapt their environment to help them to help reduce the demands, but then at the same time really working on building those skills. So I think it comes down to perhaps um, you know the third part where you're actually the invitation step where um, with those students who don't struggle as frequently, they're, they have the skills and they can come up with the plan easily, whereas the other ones exactly. who have more problems and skills take right. more time and need more support right. in implementing their plan. Right, so when parents come in for the... Go ahead, Nina. Go ahead. But I do think that's that big last step almost of having CPS at your school is um, figuring out how to not have that divide between the kids that do need CPS and the kids don't because I think my staff is really understanding now those, you know, that 10% of our population who are obviously, you know, the traditional discipline has just never worked because if it had worked, I mean, a lot of these kids have been overly punished since they were two. Exactly. And it's... You know, and it's not, it's so clear. You know, I have one student who every day just says he's in trouble, he's in trouble, he's getting everything taken away. And I, it's such a good example to tell to the staff, like, well, obviously if, you know, if that had worked, if punishment worked, he would have been, it would have been forever ago. So but so that's really easy to understand, I think, for, at this point. It wasn't always easy, for sure, but now I think that's easy. But it's those, it's that other 
you know, 80, 90%, like you're saying, that is harder for people to understand. They still think that some of that behavior is in their control. And right. you, can, you can even hear people have conversations of, well, was that, were they doing that on purpose? Or was that one not on purpose? Maybe this day he was on purpose. So it's just this constant conversation with adults, too, and uh, figuring figuring that out, too. And really, when you get back at saying, well, if they're if they're doing that on purpose, let's go deeper. Like, why would you right. do that on purpose every day? And so it's just that. Mm-hmm. that, that, that the definition of insanity, where we continue to do the same thing over and yeah. over and expect a different right. result. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I'm, I'm the problem doesn't confused. lie with the students. I'm still maybe I'm having a dense day, or maybe because this is the third radio program of the day. By the way, the <laughs> radio program that immediately preceded this one, which I only do once a month, I spoke with um, Jeff Morin, who is the acting superintendent at Mountain View Youth Development Center, which is a juvenile detention facility in Charleston, Maine. And boy, what an articulate spokesperson he is for solving problems collaboratively with with kids. And he's working with the most challenging kids in the entire state in his facility. And we learned in that conversation that in his facility, they reduced recidivism from 12 years ago, where it was over 100% of kids leaving and coming back, to 20% now. Wow. wow. Which is an astounding. But but let me go back to my. But so I'm, he, he, I may be sort of still riding that wave. But <laughs> here's here's what I'm confused about. I'm, I'm I've never been a very good judge of whether somebody's doing something on purpose or not. It's never <laughs> no, been it's never been my specialty. And so a long time ago I stopped trying to figure <laughs> out whether this was an example of on purpose or not. And instead, for good reason that I'll explain in a second, I default into um I need to understand why it occurred under in these conditions, whether it's a kid for whom it occurs under these conditions frequently or whether it's a kid for whom it occurred under certain conditions very infrequently, since I've never been good at figuring out whether it's on purpose or not and since I've always found those discussions to be um, indecisive with different people weighing in on something that we'll actually never be able to ascertain with great precision, I default into, well, you know what, I'll never know whether it was on purpose or not. And to tell you the truth, whether it was on purpose or not would not necessarily influence my intervention strategy. But at the very least, I need to talk with the kid about why under these conditions he had difficulty, whether he does frequently or not. And it sounds like, Tom, that's what you did. So as Carol said, Maybe this is a depth issue in terms of the degree to which you felt need to apply the remaining steps of solving the problem collaboratively. But the part that I'm probably still most confused about is if um, we're gathering information from kids about what they were struggling with, whether they struggle frequently or infrequently, then it feels to me like we have pretty much a good thing to say to parents who are wondering why one their kid may have been treated differently and the answer is well we didn't treat your kid differently right. 
I gathered information from your child about why, though he is infrequently getting himself into trouble, in this situation he found it difficult to respond adaptively. So I just want to make, maybe I'm missing something today or maybe because I've been doing radio programs for a better part of the day, I'm dense at this point, but um, thoughts on that? I think I totally agree with everything that you just said. I think that sometimes people, other people that don't share their philosophy, that's where they have a hard time is trying to, to figure out. They talk, you know, talk a lot about what's on purpose and what's not. Um, mm. But, you know, I think that I hear that a lot. So it's helpful to hear your perspective to know how to kind of get out of that conversation. Because just like, and, that, and that's what I try to model for for everyone that we keep, we're never going to be that conversation is just worthless because we're never going to figure that out. And what's the point? Um, because there's a reason for it, and we need to figure out how, what's going on so we can solve the problem. I've never been able to figure out the technology for determining on purpose or not with the level of precision <laughs> that I would prefer, and I find that actually there is no precision to it. It's more just um, a, uh, the lenses of the adult more than it is the intentions of the kid. Um, right. I'm, so that's that that part has always stumped me on purpose or not i'd rather not it's almost like the nature versus nurture debate or is this genetics or environment you know um right let's figure out what 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 went down what the kids concerns are and and then we'll figure out how to help him but um you know even if a kid says i hit him on purpose cuz he had it coming to him right if it's a kid, if it's a kid who's infrequently in trouble I'm asking, well, what what about the situation made you feel that he had it coming to him? Well, he's been teasing me about my haircut for three weeks. He had it coming to him. And all of a sudden, on purpose, is no longer actually what was going on in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. I just, I think expl- explaining that and getting that off the table is so important. And what sometimes I just say is, well, it doesn't, you know, we're never going we're never going to figure that out and also if it's really on purpose all the time then then there's something else going on that we need you know that's not enough to to just say we're not going to deal with it we still have to on purpose or not we have to figure out what's going on but i i do think that that uh, um i've always struggled with and i'm just going to put this on the table because i think it might be a topic for another one of these conversations but i think it it's something that we all struggle with is is I remember early on meeting with Kim. I said, Kim, there has to be expectations. Kim, by the way, for our listeners, is one of our trainers that um, Tom's Tom's school has been receiving some training from. But go on. Yeah, well, just how do we balance having expectations and consequences with helping children to solve problems collaboratively? Because I think that, that it, you know, I feel that I really did. I sat down, I listened to kids. I I got their concerns and perspective. I shared mine. We talked about what we would need to do differently in the future. I mean, I did all the steps of Plan B through any discipline process that I'm involved in. But ultimately, at the end of that, I'm not the guidance counselor. I'm the principal, and parents look to me to have safety and expectations in the school when challenging things occur. And the weirdest part about that is that I really do think that at times a little bit of discipline does motivate some students to not do something and to think about it again 
for those who can respond adaptively. I think those who 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 who, uh, um, who need a, a deeper level of collaborative problem solving um, need to have a, not flexibility, but a different type of intervention when these types of things occur. So, I mean, it goes back to the whole basic philosophy. If you know what's coming through the door, um, you, you kind of know how to handle the student. The problem is that that makes sense to us in this conversation, but I'm not sure that's always a battle that you're going to win in the, in, the, in the courtroom of public perception when it comes to fairness of discipline in the eyes of average parents that don't understand the different variations of behavioral need children come to school with. So it's really hard to explain to the computer programmer or the parent who doesn't work with kids all day, um, I would say more accurately, a, a, um, a, a parent who doesn't deal with children at work and don't understand the complex nature of this level of human interaction. It's hard to explain to them why their child, um, um, you know, at the end of this long process of figuring out everything that's going on, received one discipline and then another child maybe received something different, that fair isn't always equal. It's hard to explain that to them. So I, I guess that that's kind of just part of part of what's come up as a result of uh, a variety of, of situations, including Chapter 33, adding fuel to the fire of the conversation. Would you agree with that, Nina? Yeah, absolutely. I think you know, it is it's that balancing act all the time, and it's also um, – I'm not sure how to say it, but just that uh, I guess that you're trying to you know, please a lot of people sometimes, and sometimes that, that means like, if someone's having a problem all the time at recess, you know, I might – and it's being unsafe. So then the next day I would do CPS during, during a recess time or something, but it's more that I'm, not, I'm trying not to set that child up for failure and that visible right. you know, feeling out there. Yeah. But at the same time, it also – pleases some people to say, oh, well, he didn't get to go to recess that day. But, you know, and we have that conversation here all the time because I just had that today. Someone said, well, why did why did she get to go out to recess yesterday, but you didn't? You kept that child in? And, you know, trying to just be transparent but also protective um, is a balance as well. And to be able to say, well, it's not about, you know, it's not just black and white rubric. It's about trying to figure out what's safe for everyone. And I'm not going to send somebody that we haven't gotten through the process of figuring out why recess is challenging, I'm not going to keep sending that child out there every day to fail um, until we figure it out. But it is, it's just it's complicated <laughs> every day and trying to trying to do what's best for children, what we know that collaborative problem solving is what ultimately helps these children with the challenging behavior, but kind of that, that messy stuff for sure. Well, it's interesting. I've, I've always applied fair does not mean equal to expectations, not necessarily discipline. Um, because another twist, Tom, on what you're saying is that rather than have to explain why one kid is getting punished and another is having problems solved collaboratively, rather than trying to figure out who's going to respond to punishment and who needs problems to be solved collaboratively, rather than reserving collaborative problem solving for the most challenging kids who clearly aren't benefiting 
from traditional discipline. Um, it's an interesting dilemma because, um, as I was saying in the case of my son, swearing is not his gig. <laughs> he swore. Um, he was mortified with himself. Um, why would we not extend the benefits of hearing about what's getting in his kid's way, which is, which sounds like we are extending to all kids. I just think that it would be very hard to make a distinction about who's benefiting, who's going to benefit from solving problems collaboratively and who's, I guess I'll just put it more simply, who's going to get A and who's going to get B um, based on our judgments about what each kid needs, especially when a reminder or just gathering information about what went down. Uh, in my son's case, and he's not the ideal example, number one, I'm not, a, I'm not a school principal, so I've only got one son and one daughter. I'm not dealing with an entire building worth of discipline decisions that are needing to be made rapidly and that there's a lot of them walking in the door. But in my son's case, I don't think I'm going to hear swearing again for quite some time. And that was accomplished through two ingredients. Um, hearing what went down, which would be the empathy step of plan B, and a reminder about our expectations, which isn't a punishment, but is just a reminder of how I expect my son to conduct himself and I believe that he has the skills to conduct himself in an appropriate manner 99.9% of the time obviously this was the 0.1% that had exceeded his capacity to respond adaptively um, it did not occur to me that he needed the extra motivation not to swear that a motivational strategy some form of punishment would have brought to the table so I guess that's sort of um, how I reconcile it, but once again, fully acknowledging I'm not a school principal. Um, this was a one-shot deal in one kid, not a one-shot deal in a bunch of kids. Um, so I'm still um, grappling with it myself in terms of the need for the added piece of a motivational strategy. That's all. Well, and, and I think that was – I was there too because the way that I framed it was and, – and I've done this a lot this fall – is I've had a conversation with your child regarding an incident with their behavior and what led up to it and what's happened. I want to talk to you about that, and, and this is what I found when I talked with them. And I'd like you to, to spend the afternoon talking with them about it. It's not a formal suspension. It's not – I'm asking you to dismiss them, but to have a conversation with them about the behavioral expectations to, to kind of affirm that there's a relationship between home and school uh, so that you can have a conversation and, and, and hear their, their perspective. And this is the information that I've gotten from our conversation today, and this is what we, we see would be a plan in the future. So typically I give them, you know, uh, the, what the what – the, the, because for the lighter – I guess I don't know how else to call it lighter or less intense or less deep plan B conversations. Usually that you know, you get the child's concern and perspective, you share yours and 
it, typically I don't see them again for that same behavior. But sometimes it does warrant like a certain level of parent awareness. I guess I didn't. I may have oh, sounded, sure. yeah, yeah. you know, at the beginning of the program that I was being heavy-handed or something. It's not like that at all. It's just even that feels like a lot to me because I'm so far on the right. on the on the positive track with handling this. Does that make sense? It does. Absolutely. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I haven't entered a suspension in the computer in three years, not once. Right. Ever. And that's the thing. A lot of times we call parents in to do. Um, you know, conversations, collaborative problem solving with with us, with the student, and and it just brings that that you know that to the challenges we're all together as a team and kind of modeling for the parents too that it's not about punishment or consequences, but about figuring out what's really going on. on but I think note, it could be seen as a punishment. On that note, and by the way, I should tell you all, um, I get a, an enormous amount of positive feedback on this program. People. Oh, cool really love these conversations. The bad news is bad news is that uh, we got to call this one off for today. Thank you all for doing this yet again. Talk to all you all next pleasure. month, eh? All, all right, thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.